I feel like that song was a bit of a gift because it was hard for me to sing those words, but I feel like, you know, thank you, Lord, for that song after what we had just prayed about. Um, scripture this morning is Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from your gra- from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. You get familiar with a place or a particular way of doing things or in terms of faith and religion, you can get familiar with certain readings. Sometimes I imagine to myself, what would it be like if you just walked into a church and had no church background at all and saw some of the things that we're doing? You'd be like, what is going on? And this morning I said to Aaron, the reading is very circumcision-y. And can you imagine walking into this place and, and thinking, I don't really know. They seem to be really against circumcision. (laughs) And is that going to be the sermon today? Uh, We'll get to what that all means. It was symbolic of a larger issue that was going on. But uh, anyway, uh, we'll we'll unpack that, that reading. We are in this series as we move towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday, the heart of our faith as Christians. And we're considering... The cross, one of the titles for our series, we're doing this and St. Timothy's is doing similar. Why did Jesus die? We're introducing major themes in the meaning of the cross. Last week we looked, after that introduction that Ken did two weeks ago, we looked at sin as a rebellion and the forgiveness that is offered in the cross in Jesus Christ. Today we consider that sin is enslavement. And in Jesus Christ, we are offered deliverance. I want to show you um, a photo. This is from an article that I read this week. That this just makes this world better, or maybe not really, that these kinds of things exist. Do you know what that is? You can see a person in the background there, kind of fuzzy. 
and in the foreground there's a flying something. You know what that is, right? It's, a, it's not only a drone, it's a selfie drone. So you can now have things that, so your phone is in your pocket, and this selfie drone, which only costs three or $4,000, what a steal. You can literally steal it by reaching out and grabbing somebody else's selfie drone. But uh, three or $4,000, I think, and it was in the news this week because the technology has been further perfected. These have actually been around for a couple of years, but this one now apparently is super good at following you. So it connects to you, and wherever you go, there's a little camera on a drone that's filming you. Thanks be to God. I mean, we could probably get some endowment or foundation to do a project where everybody in the church gets a selfie drone, and we show up, and as you're listening to me, there's just all these little flying cameras. I bring this up, building on the Diet Coke ad from last week, You Do You, because as we consider sin as enslavement, I'm going to introduce in this sermon a key idea in my mind, I think it's key in our culture, that one of the things that enslaves us is self-focus. There are actually applications for this that make good sense. Like if I'm riding my bike, I want to watch a video of myself riding my bike. That's good. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's dumb. But anyway, there are good applications for this. But it comes about from this idea of that we're always considering ourselves and that somehow we must be the most interesting thing in the world. Enslavement in our culture is at times often, I would say, enslavement to self. So let me unpack this for you as we, before we introduce the major themes. If I say to you right now, I want you to think about all your worries and fears little things that are bothering you, other people that have done things that have... Just, it's not that hard to do, is it? Or your discomfort or whatever it is. As you think about that, you somehow, you know this in your spirit, you actually kind of diminish. You become closed off to people around you. Often you become anxious and fearful. If I say to you, on the other hand, I'd like you to think about people who love you. I'd like you to think about people in need in this world, even in our own community. Do you see what happens in your spirit? You're open. Two major motifs for sin in Scripture. The first, two big ones. The first is that sin is wrongdoing. This is that childlike or sometimes childish idea that sin means I have sinned, so I have done something wrong. I shouldn't have smashed this podium because somebody made it, and so God forgive me for breaking that thing. Something like that. Right? So sin is wrongdoing that is atoned for. So the cross represents God's atonement for the sins of the world. That's one motif. The second motif is slavery or enslavement. That sin is that which enslaves us And Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, demonstrating his love for the whole world, delivers us from that enslavement. 
This is a key concept in all of Scripture. There obviously is a dividing line to some degree in how it's understood in the Old Testament and the New Testament from Jewish faith to Christian faith. Certainly in the Old Testament, this identity of we are slaves who have been set free is central. The most central. Deuteronomy, when Moses, before the people entered the promised land, Deuteronomy, all it is, it's a whole book of Moses talking. They've they've wandered for 40 years in the desert. They're on one side of the river. They're going to enter into the promised land, and Moses gives a big, long speech. And in the speech, he basically says, when you get to a place where it's really comfortable and there's lots of blessings, don't forget God. And don't think that you did all that to provide all that goodness. If you forget God, there'll be consequences of forgetting God. And the speech contains many other details. In the midst of that speech, Moses And this is not the only time there. It happens over and over. But in Deuteronomy 26, verses 5 through 10, many of you will remember these verses from old Sunday school days. There's some songs that come from this. Moses is saying, remember who you are. And here comes the text. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down to Egypt. We were few in number. We grew to be a great nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, humiliated us, and enslaved us. Then we cried out to the Lord our God. He heard our voice and saw our affliction, and the Lord brought us out. He delivered us and brought us to this place, this land of promise flowing with milk and honey. Now, these people that he's speaking to were not actually slaves in Egypt. They had lived two generations since then. But he is saying, remember as you go into the land who you are, you are an enslaved people that has been set free. And the whole of the Old Testament revolves around this theme. Early on in the Exodus journey, when the people went from Egypt being slaves to the Promised Land, you remember what happens early on? Right after they get through the Red Sea, where God parts the sea and they're delivered, not long after that, what do they do? They look out at that vast expanse of land, like you looking out at your life and going, how possibly are things going to be okay? And so they said, we'd be better to go back to Egypt. And they do this thing. They idealize their old life of enslavement. And they say, remember when we were in Egypt and we just sat around all the time and ate whatever we wanted? Now, you know that neither of those things is true. They neither sat around nor ate whatever they wanted. But they're lying to themselves because they're afraid of the future. They long to go back. But it's just helpful to remember that the Red Sea parting was not only a miracle to get them through to the other side to be free from Egypt, it also parting and coming back together was a reminder that they weren't going back. He didn't part it for them to go back. We are a people delivered from slavery and all through the prophets in our Bibles, that big long section of scripture, this will come out again in Amos Chapter 2, verse 10. It was I, God says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and led you through the wilderness for 40 years. All the way through to the Passover. The Passover is the remembrance of their freedom from Egypt. And it's the Passover feast that Jesus is taking the night that he is betrayed before his crucifixion. He takes the bread of the Passover, the wine of the Passover, and he turns that feast into a feast saying, Now, know that it is in my body and my blood that you are set free. This is central in our scripture. 
for us, the Eucharist and the communion. So I ask you, or imagine that person who walked into church and thought, why are they talking about circumcision? The question, of course, for us would be, why on earth would this matter to us or to others in this world? Well, I'll say this. I don't think I have to go to great lengths to prove this. You could argue with me, but there are things in our lives which enslave us. Addictions, habits, appetites, sins. The cross, we are told, in the cross we are set free. And we declare, and it's, it's hard on a morning like this morning to declare what I'm about to declare. But we declare that the cross has set us free from death and slavery. Enslavement. Where, O death, is your victory? We say, even in mourning. Our hearts are given to self-focus and self-centeredness. And in trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for us, we are told, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're set free. The Jewish Passover feast is a memorial of God's saving action in the past. They are gathering to have that Passover feast to remember decades, decades and decades and decades ago, centuries ago, what God has done for them. It's a reminder of God's saving action in the past, but it is also an awareness of God's saving action in the present and into the future. In other words, the people would say to one another, we are a people who have been set free, we are a people who are set free, we are being set free, and we will be set free. Our God is the one who sets us free, and that freedom is at issue in this Galatians text. The imagery The positive imagery of that freedom comes up in Isaiah. And yes, I know there's a typo in there. I was preaching at St. Tim's this morning, and they told me there's a typo in there. Mourning in this is supposed to have a U. I accept that. Thank you very much. Was it not you who dried up the sea? Now, these people, they'd gone into that promised land, lived there for decades and generations. They had, in fact, forgotten God. So they were now facing the consequences of that forgetting. Right? Remember the charges against them from last week? That they were not kind to the needy? That they worshipped false idols? Right? Idolatry and this sin of not loving other people. God had allowed that judgment to come upon them, and they were off in exile in a foreign land. It's another kind of slavery. But in that land, now the prophets break forth with, it's like spring has come. And in the midst of the darkness come these declarations of life in God and freedom in God. Was it not you who dried up the sea? See how we're picking up images from Exodus? But now they're being spoken to a people who are facing a different kind of enslavement. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great depths, who made in the depths of the sea a way to pass over or through? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion promised land with singing everlasting joy shall be upon their heads and they shall obtain gladness and joy They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. In other words, you will know freedom. And as Christians, I was reading a Jewish scholar this week in preparation for this sermon, and this Jewish scholar pointed out, he said, for us Jews, he said, the central image is the exodus, deliverance from slavery. For you Christians, he's very, this wonderful respect for the Christian faith. He said, for you Christians, that mark of deliverance is the cross of Jesus Christ. And we say freedom. 
And for them and for us, the reminder comes, this is not by your own goodness, this is not by your own merit or your own righteousness, this is by the mercy of God. In other words, we understand the character of God because he is one who sets people free from enslavement, even the enslavement of their own sin. Don't forget that a fundamental distinction of Christianity from other faiths is the justification of the ungodly. His mercy. When I put my faith in Jesus Christ, now I can't teach you this. This is something that you experience by doing it. When I put my faith in what Jesus Christ has done for me and has done for the whole world, I am, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, set free. Set free. Now our text Galatians, that's what Paul is talking about as he writes this letter to a church that he is fed up with. This is his angriest letter in the New Testament. There's not actually that much anger in many of his letters. He loses patience with the Corinthian church, but the Galatian church, he's basically like, I'm almost done with you. And it's because of this. The beginning of the text that Aaron read for us, basically, Paul asks this, this kind of harsh question. What are you doing you ever do that to someone you love? What is wrong with you? It's a terrible way to do it in a way, but he's not that aggressive. But he says, what has happened in your life that you who have been set free have gone back to slavery? Now, what kind of slavery was it that he was talking about? In this case, it was the slavery of religion. In other words, people had come into their midst who had said, the freedom, that freedom in Jesus Christ is not enough. You have to have the following religious observance, and circumcision was one of those. That's why it's there. So they were demanding that they take on all these religious rules and rituals to be acceptable to God. And Paul comes in and says, what has happened that you have gone back to that slavery? Side note, when I was a youth minister, you've heard this story before, but I'll tell you again. I'm looking down there because that's where I sat at the time. We used to have the youth group sitting right here. Remember that back in the day? This stage wasn't here. And I got in trouble from the senior pastor at the time. It wasn't the only time I got in trouble from the senior pastor. Um, because the youth group who was sitting down here, they all sit up there, and a bunch of them sit up there now. But uh, it, was, it was a sermon where the word circumcision came up a lot. And I could see that the senior minister at the time kind of was looking at us and giving me a bit of the evil eye or the, you know, angry eye. And because what the kids were doing in the youth group is they were counting how many times he said circumcision. And he said it 17 times. And so there was a lot of little snickering. And I mean, they were listening. At least they were counting. (laughs) They were listening at least for one word. (laughs) And he could tell. Now, I don't know what got into me that day. Anyway. Uh, he could tell that I wasn't discouraging this practice. And so the next day he called me into his office and asked me about that. And I said, yeah, they were counting the word circumcision. And he said, well, what do you think about that? Or something like that. I said, well, you said it 17 times. I think that's funny. (laughs) Anyway, I can't remember what happened from that time on. Ken said, well, you went to the Presbyterian church. Um, (laughs) It's ancient and weird in some ways. It's not talking about some uh, 
contemporary medical argument. That's not what this text is about. What the text is about is whatever it is that people are putting on you to say you have to do the following one, two, three, four, or five things to be acceptable to God. If you accept that, you accept this yoke of slavery again. In Galatians, people had come to faith in Jesus Christ, but some people had come along again with this religious message and people had gone back to it. In other sections, Paul will use language like, who has bewitched you with some other gospel? That's not a gospel at all. You have allowed yourselves to be enslaved once again. His argument, Paul's argument, is that you know about freedom in Christ, but you've gone back to human religion. So this enslavement that we can experience, if it's a religious culture that you live in, and we most of us don't live in a religious culture now in the West, But if it is a religious culture that you live in, and some of you can remember living in a religious culture, if you live in a particularly religious culture, that enslavement is likely to come out by religious means, like rules. If you live in a culture that is not primarily religious, but is more centered on self and humanity, right? People as the center. Then that enslavement is likely to come out in being self-focused. But it's the same thing. Paul's argument is if you trust in religion and we would say or if you trust in self then the cross isn't worth anything. He says in this text the offense of the cross has been removed. You don't need the cross if you can achieve acceptance. So in Christian understanding you don't need the cross if it's made to be about religion and rules. And you certainly don't need the cross in our secular environment if the way that you make it in the world is just focus on yourself. In this language of Paul's, he is angry. Preaching at St. Timothy's this morning and when the text was read, Grady Bueller started laughing out loud in his robe because he got it. Paul is using aggressive language. It's darkly humorous. Remember, circumcision is the example, so he uses this language of cutting and severing and over and over again. He says, if you trust in human religion, verse 4, you will be severed from Christ. Why would he use that language? Well, you know. See how the Bible works? It's good if you read it and listen. And then he says, I don't know who did this to you. I don't know who came in with some false human authority and told you you need to do the following things, particularly one, but a bunch of others as well. I don't know who did it, but you know what I wish? And this is when it gets the most harsh. I wish that they would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. It's not only harsh, it's not only aggressive, but it's great argument. It's good rhetoric for how you make an argument. Paul says... If you think circumcision makes you more acceptable to God, then just cut everything off and maybe God will love you even more. He's angry. And why such anger? Because he says, Jesus Christ has set you free. Do not allow yourselves to be enslaved again. Religion will do this over and over. The way to please God is this religious observance or this set of rules. And when that happens... And you'll get to what the call is here in this text, what Paul wants them to be doing instead. When you begin to think that God's acceptability is based on being part of a religious group or following certain observances, then what happens is you become cut off from other people. 
He's angry because he understands that freedom in Christ does something. And if you don't know that freedom in Christ, it's harder to find that thing. What freedom in Christ does, it's not just that it saves you so you can go to heaven. That's a, that's a really thin religious view. Freedom in Christ allows you to do what Christ has called you to do. Freedom in Christ allows you to love other people. And if you're not free, then you can't love. So, if you're enslaved to religion, you will define the world by religious categories and that will prevent you from loving other people. If you are enslaved by self, you'll just be thinking of yourself all the time and you can't be present for the other. Or they're like an accessory in your life. This is, for many, the new form of religion, a self-focus. I read an article in the New Yorker magazine. It was in the January 15th edition, if you're interested. The article, now this is not a religious publication, obviously, or a Christian publication, but uh, the article was very interesting to me. It was called Improving Ourselves to Death. And it basically was an examination of self-help. And it was kind of humorous and the rest. The gist of the article was, the more you focus on yourself, strangely enough, the worse you feel. And this wasn't presented as a religious argument. And they went through. They said, there's a great deal of money to be made by those who diagnose our fears and inadequacy. They said, we are under pressure to show that we know how to lead the perfect life. And so you get words like goal setting, the power of habit. One of the books that the article talked about was called Super Better. Wouldn't you like to be super better? One told you in the language of gaming, like video games, how to use that understanding to better yourself so you can get power-ups and form alliances, have allies. Smarter, better, faster, with the key goal being, and here's the goal, this is the religion. And it also enters into Christianity where we begin to treat Jesus as if his role is to make us happy or solve every problem that we have. This is how Christianity moves into what is often called the prosperity gospel. It's a form of this self-centeredness. Happiness and productivity become the goals. And then the curse, the greatest curse in our world, is if you're not happy. And some of you know what that means. If you get to the place where you feel, I don't think I'm happy right now, and then you really start to sink. Let me tell you something. As freedom, to set you free from chains... Sometimes you're not going to be happy. And it's okay. Even, there's been distortions of scripture in service of this. We mentioned a particular form of gospel, so-called. But in 2006, there was a very famous book. Some of you may have read it. There's probably good things in it. I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm encapsulating the whole thing. But the book was called The Secret. And the secret became very popular. The heart of the secret was visualization. If you can visualize something, then you'll get it, basically. They used in that book scripture, Christian scripture. Matthew 21, 22. Whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer. I'm reading it from King James because it sounds more powerful. Whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, ye shall receive. So then the book went on to say, you want a husband? Picture a husband. And I guess everybody pictured like a really good-looking husband. 
Picture, you want a car? Picture a car. Now, there's more to it than that. I'm comic booking it, I know. But that is underneath it. So what's happened is, in our world, in the West, certainly, and I'm glad for this, I'm so glad for this, and in a way we're not done with it yet, but we have thrown off religious guilt, right? Not a ton of people that you know are walking around really feeling guilty religiously. Maybe they're in some Catholic expression at times, still in some harsh Protestantism as well. But we've thrown off religious guilt, which is a distortion of God, because that presents a God who's against you, which is not Christian scripture. We've thrown that off and now adopted a relentless self-focus. Self-focus to better ourselves will say things like, don't judge yourself. I mean, I understand the truth of that, but we should, we should always be evaluating kind of our motives, our heart. Were we loving there? Did we do wrong? Not in an angry religious way. The gist of the article, as I mentioned at the end, and even through it, said this, and it's why it's called Improving Ourselves to Death. Time spent focusing on self tends to make us feel worse. One of, the, one of the people mentioned in the article who spent a year and a half doing all the things that a ton of these books said to do. He said, I spent a year focused on me, and at the end, I didn't feel at all like a better version of myself. I felt less present. Joe Biden, who was vice president of the United States under Barack Obama, I saw an interview with him recently. He was talking about his 46-year-old son who died three years ago. And Joe Biden said with tears in his eyes at the end of this interview, he said, I always remember one thing Bo said to me. (laughs) Joe Biden's such a man of the people. I always remember one thing Bo said to me. He said, Dad, unless you figure out something more important than yourself to focus on, you'll never truly be happy. We are living in a culture that is enslaved to self. But we ought not to holler at that culture you see this sometimes across demographic lines where sometimes people who are older can say, look at how terribly self-obsessed those young people are. Let me say to you, can I free you from ever saying that? You don't need to know how self-obsessed some young people are. You need to know, and, and the mark that you're willing to say that means there might be a little self-focus in your life because what you are implying is, I was never that self-focused. And even if that's true, it doesn't help anybody. We are enslaved, and Christianity has one, one of the things that it can offer the world is to say, and I don't know, maybe some people don't think this is attractive. I do. To say, do you know that you can be set free from such self-focus? There's something more, something better. And in being free, from that self-focus, the first fruit is that you are more able to love other people. Even enemies. On the cross, we have been set free from religious law and we have been set free from self. Galatians 6.5 For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What matters is faith working itself out through love. In this chapter, sorry. On to verse 13. But once you discover that you're free, 
don't use your freedom to indulge your flesh. In other words, Paul is already anticipating that once you know you're free from religion, that kind of observance as except as what makes you acceptable to God, once you know you're free from that, the temptation will be to serve your own appetites. He knew what would happen in the world. So once you're free from that, let me tell you, don't indulge that freedom in just living for yourself and your appetites. He says in verse 14, the whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the reason you have been set free from religion and from self is so that you may better love, which is a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't need to divide the world up religiously and you don't need a selfie drone even if it's imaginative. Like some of you can imagine. You Just imagine you're always on film somewhere. Verse 15. Don't bite and devour one another. What matters is faith working itself out through love. In putting my faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for me, I am set free to love. I am set free from those things which have so often prevented me from being able to love well and properly, the two biggest being religion and self-focus. Religion is not my Savior and Lord. A way of religious observance is not my Savior and Lord. And certainly, self is not Savior and Lord. One of the interesting things has happened in our culture. And again, I don't blame the people who are doing this because I think it's almost always done with proper motivation from a a place of of well-meaning. Where self-focus gets presented as virtue. That, of course, makes sense in a world where transcendence has gone. Focus on yourself. Self is not Savior and Lord. The Christian faith will declare. And this is an inclusive love for all people. The Christian faith faith will declare that it is Jesus Christ who is Savior and Lord and sets us free. Verse 16, which wasn't in our text, says, Now then what will happen is that when you trust in Jesus Christ, you will receive the Holy Spirit and you will walk in that Spirit And in that spirit, you love one another. Faith working itself out through love. So now, three things before we turn to communion. Three practical things you can do. Well, the first one particularly, first two are practical. Uh, We're entering Lent. You could have started this on Wednesday, but it's not too late. Give something up. Try it. It's a religious observance that's been part of Christian churches for centuries that during the season of Lent, those six weeks leading up to Easter, and most real kind of church specialists say, but you don't have to do this on Sundays. Isn't that great? So you've given up ice cream for Lent, but you can eat ice cream on Sundays. So there you go. If you need that out, someone's like, really? Oh, wow. And people just left. Anyhow, give something up. Why? Well, not because giving something up somehow makes you more acceptable to God. 
It's not that the religious observance earns any merit whatsoever, but giving something up, even if it's small, can often teach you what you are enslaved to. And that allows you to see more what Jesus Christ has done for you. So try it. Give something up for six weeks. Secondly, pray each day, starting with these words. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for setting me free. You could add, come Holy Spirit, because it's in the Holy Spirit that you'll know that freedom. Thank you for setting me free. Remember, you were an enslaved people, enslaved to religion and enslaved to self, but you have been set free so that you can love And finally, remember that the only thing that matters is this faith working itself out through love. So now we turn to communion. The Passover feast that Jesus instituted from being the Passover feast in Jewish faith to being the Eucharist in communion in Christian faith. That Jesus Christ, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and when he had given thanks... He broke it and he gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, Jesus took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink this. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. Therefore we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We say you are welcome to take communion. Of course, it's up to you. You can take it uh, just as you would like. But what we do in this church is say you're welcome to take communion if you know Jesus Christ or if you would like to. We also want you to know that there is absolutely no shame in letting the communion pass by. Here we just take it as it's passed to us and we receive it ourselves. We don't wait for instruction, at least not this morning. So if you know Jesus Christ or you would like to, receive the communion. If you know that you need to make something right with someone, even as a Christian, that you're harboring unforgiveness, or then sometimes it's good to let the communion pass and go and make that thing right and come back. We'll have communion next week too, all through Lent. So Heavenly Father, would you, by the presence of the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, your presence, open our eyes to what Jesus Christ has done for us. Thank you that this communion is a reminder of the one who emptied himself of self so that we could know love. Come Holy Spirit, open our eyes in Jesus' name. Amen.